text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 5, verses 10 through 12. Galatians 5, 10 through 12. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you help our hearts and minds now as we consider your word, we consider where our hope is. Father, I pray that your power, your knowledge, your love would be the thing that sustains our soul that we would not put confidence in our flesh. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of Christ's most surprising statements He made, I think, to most people is when He said, Do not think I have come to bring peace to, to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. How's that for a Christmas sermon text? Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but to divide families in half. Surprising words. Why have you come, Jesus? I've come to bring the sword, to divide. You won't find that on a coffee cup, Christmas coffee cup. That doesn't really fit with our American sentimental view of Christ. In fact, if you want a sentimental Jesus, you won't find Him in the Bible. You can find Him at the local bookstore probably. But if you look in the Bible, you will not find a Christ that just brings this nostalgic warm, fuzzy feeling. In fact, if your father just passed away and the funeral's tomorrow and you just heard Christ preach today and here's your chance to talk to Him and you go up to Him and say, Jesus, I want to follow You, but first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead Bury the dead. Follow me now. What's up with this Christ? What kind of view do you and do I have of Christ? What kind of view do we have of 
the God of the Bible. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Sam, isn't God the God of love? That is true. The Bible says God is love, but the God of love bled. It doesn't make for sentimental feelings when the love is expressed through the worst torturous murder history has ever seen. You know, you may have that nostalgic feeling as you think of yourself as the bride of Christ. Are we not the bride? Is He not our groom? Yes, but read the Bible. Your groom is coming with a robe that's dripping in blood, ready to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. There's your groom. There's your Christ. In fact, in Revelation 19, which speaks of that, speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, this, this surely is where it gets sentimental. Where Christ serves His church the meal. With the robe dripping blood, by the way. But He's there to serve the church. And yet, right after that supper is another supper called the Great Supper of God where Christ destroys every unbelieving human being on the earth and God calls for the birds of the air to come feast on their flesh. That is the Christ the Bible gives us. It doesn't fit very good in American culture. Eternal hell doesn't fit very good in our culture where we're comfortable when we're civilized, when we're talking about surface things, when we're joking around and giddy about stuff that doesn't really matter. Something gets serious, watch the room clear. It's unnatural for us to read the Bible and see Christ for who He is. Christ came into the world to, the, to divide the world into two groups. The sheep and the goats. The righteous and the unrighteous. Those who are found in Christ and those who are lost in Adam. Believers and unbelievers those who are saved by grace and those who will be judged according to their works in which they are trusting in. You see, there's no third category. You're either in or you're out. You're saved or you're lost. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. You either have righteousness or you have none. You see, it's just a little too black and white for a pluralistic culture that loves gray. There has to be another way. There has to be more than one way. But the Bible's clear. There's two distinct groups. There's not three. There's not many. Christ is the dividing one. 
He's the rock of offense. He's the stumbling block for the unbeliever, but the one, but he's also the one who keeps us from stumbling for those who trust in him. Christ is where everything parts, where the two groups are spread apart. For the Bible is clear that there's only one road that leads to heaven. There's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one atoning sacrifice, one son, one righteousness. And the majority of the world rejects that righteousness and finds hope in polishing up their unrighteousness. There's two groups of people, those who have Christ's righteousness, a real righteousness that will never fade, and another group that is trying to make their unrighteousness not look all that bad. Jesus was clear, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He wasn't coming for the ones who are shining up their unrighteousness. He didn't come for those trying to be good enough and finding their hope in and of themselves. He came for sinners. In Romans 10, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jews is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Paul prays and he says, Oh, that the Jews would be saved. But since they didn't understand God's righteousness, Jesus Christ, they went about trying to establish their standing before God. You know, just this week, going through the Bible study some of the men in the church are going through, uh, called Knowing the Living God, it just struck me how the attributes of God are just, they're either good or they're horrible for you. If you're a believer, they're a blessing. If you're not, it's absolutely terrifying. Let me give you a couple examples just straight out of our uh, Bible study. The omnipotence of God, God's attribute of omnipotence, which speaks of God being powerful, so powerful that His power is infinite so that He's able to accomplish all that which He purposes to do. For the Christian, the study said, this instills absolute confidence in God because He has all the power to do all that He is appointed to do. If God gives you a promise and He's all-powerful, then we can have confidence and comfort in this. 
But if you're a non-believer, this attribute instills terror because no man can resist his will or escape his judgment. Or how about the omnipresence of God? For a Christian, this instills great confidence and comfort again. Every believer benefits from God's undivided presence. God isn't partially present here. God isn't so big in the sense where He's all over the world, so His toe is in this worship service. But God's omnipresence, what the Bible teaches about it, is that He's here fully, and yet this place can't contain Him. That's our God. We can have peace knowing there's never a moment for a believer where God's full, undivided attention is there presently with us for our good. And yet for the unbeliever, this instills terror because there's no possibility of hiding from Him. You can never get away. How about the omniscience of God? For the Christian, this instills great confidence and comfort. God knows our every need. If He knows everything, He knows our every need. He understands our every trial. And He has given us the infallible Word of God to guide us through life. And yet, for the unbeliever, this instills terror because God will judge every man according to His perfect knowledge of all the facts. No sin will be hidden and no sin will be forgotten. Every creature, every deed, every thought is open before Him like a book at all times. Utter terror. You know, Mark was telling me in Africa that some of the Muslims, when they're getting ready to sin, they'll go under a grass hut because they don't want God to see it. They don't want Him to see what's about to happen. The God of the Bible is either comfort and confidence or terror to you. There's two groups. There isn't a third. There's two groups. And Paul's goal all throughout this letter for this church is that they don't buy into some third way. The Judaizers have come in and said, yes, you need to trust in Christ by faith, but then you got to add works to it. You see, it's not just law and it's not just faith. It's a third category. And that's the way in. And all throughout this letter, Paul's trying to help them see. If you want works, you have to keep the whole law. If you're guilty of it, you'll be judged. It's either one or the other. Grace or works. God's righteousness or your polished up unrighteousness. Which one will it be? And now... As we come to this text, Paul 
has this curious confidence in this Galatian church, which seems to be going down a difficult road. And I want to consider that now. I just want to read the verses we looked at last week to get a little bit into context. Remember in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Paul recognizes the Galatian church, which was running well by faith, has now stopped. Someone has come in. Someone has hindered them. And yet, in verse 10, he says this, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. This is odd. Why would Paul be confident that this church is going to listen to his letter and not buy in to the deceptive false teachers in Galatia? Why does he have this confidence? Paul's theology of salvation being wholly a work of God gives him confidence that those who are saved by God will continue in the faith by that same God who saved them through His power. The power that got them saved will keep them saved. Uh, in theological terms, uh, people call this the perseverance of the saints. Wayne Grudem says this. Here's his definition. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will, pres and will preserve as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end will have been truly born again. So the doctrine is that those who are born again will be kept by God's power and will continue trusting in Christ by faith to the end of their life. And if they do not, it is not proof that one of God's children was stillborn. He tried to birth it, but then it failed. But rather, it was only a mirage. It was the type of faith that does not save, that a person was not truly born again, even though it may have looked like that. You see, Paul understood God's work in salvation, the starting of it and the keeping of it, the preserving of that salvation. So much so that when we went through 1 Corinthians a couple years ago, this church that is so messed up, Members of the church are sleeping with their mother-in-law. The church isn't doing anything about it. They're all arguing about who's the greatest, who has the best gifts. This is a messed up church. And yet Paul says things like this. 1 Corinthians 3.1 But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, 
as infant Christ. Let me, let me read that again. But I, brothers... You see, if I was writing the letter, I'd probably write, but I, false believers... What does he say? Brothers. Rather than assuming they're lost, he calls them infants in Christ. Why the confidence when such horrible ugliness is coming out of this church? And then even in 2 Corinthians, when he's writing back to this difficult church, and when he's telling them to test themselves. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But then he says, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Why the confidence? Why not just give the test verse? See if you're in the faith. Period. Suck on that for a while. That's not what he does. He has a confidence. Why in 1 Corinthians 13 does he say, love hopes all things? Why the confidence? Because he knows that man's faith never began in man's heart apart from the grace of God. God did the miracle of creating faith in man and he has confidence in God. Isn't that what this verse says? I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. He doesn't say I have confidence in you in the goodness that you display In this great track record, no. He has confidence that the Lord will keep him, keep this church because of his theology of salvation and perseverance. When he writes his letter to the Colossian church, he says says this in most of his letters, something like this. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Why? Why do you thank God when you pray for the Colossian people, Paul? Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you've shown for all the saints. Well, that doesn't make sense, Paul. Why do you thank God for their faith and their love? What it should say He should be writing a letter to the Colossians saying, I thank you for your amazing faith and your love. But subtly, if you read Paul's letters carefully, he's thanking God all the time for their faith. Because he understands that that faith was given to them by him. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, how he starts this out. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why do, why do you do that? He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Huh. 
He's giving the thanks to God all the time because they're remembering, he's remembering their work of faith and labor of love and the steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, not lovers of God, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word, not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So he thanks God for this Thessalonian church when he sees their faith and their labor of love because he knows that they were loved by God and chosen by God and that when he preached the Word of God, the people didn't get smarter all of a sudden and all of a sudden figured out, but that God did something as His Word came with power and resurrected dead hearts. This is Paul's theology, his confidence, which is no surprise why in Galatians chapter 3, if you Verses earlier, chapters earlier, he said, let me ask you only this. When did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? He's saying, when did the miracle happen? When the Spirit came and moved powerfully when the Word was preached, not when you polished up your unrighteousness. In 2 Timothy 2, the reason why I printed all these out in your, you, you don't need to follow these. In a sense, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a perseverance bath. I'm just bathing you in a bunch of texts that I tried to get out of my sermon that I couldn't. So I'm just going to read them to you. I want you to feel the weight of, of uh, God's preserving act for us. Philippians 1.6. Where does Paul's confidence come from? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How do you get any more clear than that? Or how about 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 at the end of this letter? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul, or may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. May God sanctify you completely. May you be kept to the end blameless in Christ Jesus. Now you might be saying, if you're like me, oh man, I hope I'm kept. I, I hope I make it. Why is my faith going to get there? Well, listen to the rest of this verse. You can live off verses like this. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You want to know my confidence that I'm going to be a Christian tomorrow and not deny the faith? It is not in the fact that I have a track 
record of being consistent and being faithful and that I'm so smart that I'm never going to walk away from Christ, my confidence ought to only ever be in the keeping power of Jesus Christ for those whom he's given faith to, for those whom he began a good work, he'll bring it to completion. So Paul says things like this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. How are we going to attain that? The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. What kind of denial is this? This is apostasy. This is those who look like they're following Christ, but then finally turn away from Him. Those people will be denied by Christ. If we endure, we'll also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now get this. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Christians can be faithless in the sense where our faith really stinks. You see, denying Christ and faithlessness cannot be the same thing when Paul puts them one right after another. Denying Christ where we're denied by Him is apostasy. But this type of faithlessness, our faith that wavers, God can't deny Himself. If he's promised to keep you to the end, he will be faithful in keeping you to the end. Here's how Jesus put it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Where does Paul's confidence come from when he believes that with this letter, which is a warning to the Galatians, that they'll receive the warning and trust in Christ? Because he believes that when he preached there, the sheep heard his voice and they came to him And if Christ came to lose nothing that the Father has given him, and Christ has all of them in his hand, and he's greater than all, and he's in the Father's hands, guess what? You can have confidence that no child of God will ever be lost. One of my favorites, Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. How do I know Christ is powerful? Well, if He's able to take me to the end of my life and present me sinless with His righteousness before God, there can't be any more power in that. How in the world can you take this wretched sinner 
and present me blameless without stumbling before the presence of the holy God of the universe. You know, our conception of God, the reason why sentimentality and nostalgia doesn't work with God, it may work in like American Christianity, it only works in American Christianity if you don't know who God is. You know, if, if I studied about the White House my whole life and Donald Trump was my hero, which he's not, from birth, and I always dreamed of getting his autograph when he became president in the White House, if I walk into that White House with all this nostalgia and with all this sentimentality in my heart and with all this love for Donald Trump, if I'm not invited in and I walk into his office like this, they are not going to treat me kind. They're going to tackle me, they're going to throw me down, and they're going to drag me out of there and put me in jail. Why? Because I didn't take into consideration who it was I was approaching. Our God is so holy that it took the Son of God to be murdered on a cross to save us. And Paul understood that the only way man's going to stand before this God is through a work of God. I was afraid this was going to happen. Psalm 138, I'll just tell you about it. We're not going to go read it. You have the psalmist at the, the first 15 verses of this psalm. He's looking at how the wicked prospers, how he's living for God and his, his life is tough. The wicked are prospering like crazy. And yet, he's bumming out. This isn't fair. And then everything changes when he walks into the sanctuary and sees, remembers who God is. And then in that moment, he begins to remember the end of those who are... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong psalm there. I'm getting ahead of myself. <clears throat> we'll get to that psalm in a minute. But we come to our senses when we recognize who God is. So, point one, have confidence in God who supplies you with persevering faith in Christ Jesus. I want to show you uh, one more text. Philippians 1.27. Just several verses after Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Listen what he says about our faith and about our belief. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 
engage in the same conflict you saw I had and now still have. couple things here. Paul says, if you believe, it was granted to you to believe. And he says, it's also been granted to you to suffer. He just told them, have unity, have one mind, have one spirit in Christ. Well, what's the sentimental view of this? Oh, yes, let's all have unity. You see, we have this in our culture, right? Let's have unity. Well, what's Christian unity look like? Right after he calls for unity, he says, and do not be frightened by your opponents. Whoa, what kind of unity is this? It's a clear sign of them, of their destruction, but of your salvation. Two groups. Once again, it's been granted to you to believe and to suffer. And then he says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now still have. What kind of peace is this? (laughs) Have peace and unity in Christ. It's been granted to you to believe and to suffer, so engage in conflict. See that? That's the unity uh, that the Bible puts on display. Unity in Christ means dividing families in half. If you trust Christ and you're in a family that rejects Christ, you're going to see real quick that Jesus feels more like a sword that comes and separates than like a unifier that makes families just warm and cozy at Christmas time. In fact, Christmas can be one of the most difficult times when families get together. Christ shows up, and how many babies die in Jerusalem? I mean, in Bethlehem. So it brings us to point two have confidence in God when you see your opponents multiplying. You see, the Galatian church, Paul preached, they got excited about the gospel, then all of a sudden these religious folks show up and they say, what are you doing? No, that's not right. Don't listen to Paul. You can't believe him. They're starting to scratch their heads and say, maybe this isn't true. Maybe this isn't right. And yet, they shouldn't be surprised. If you trust in the gospel, opponents are going to show up. False teachers are going to be there. They're going to tempt you to pull away from Christ. We live in a spiritual world, remember? The last thing the devil wants, the last thing his demons want, is the gospel to be proclaimed. No surprise. Rather than lose confidence when your opponents show up, You should gain confidence. I'm not talking about creating opponents like some idiotic Christians do for being self-righteous and and not showing love and, and making a fool of themselves. They bring their own persecution on. There's no honor in that. I'm talking about for people who are lovingly sharing the gospel and when they get attacked, They respond in love. If that's you and your opponents show up, it should be confidence, according to that text we just looked at in Philippians 1, that you're saved and that they have destruction coming. 
You see, it's hard in America to believe in the Jesus of the Scriptures. You try to defend hell out there in the public square. Eternal suffering under the omnipotent wrath of God. You're going to find yourself in your flesh really quickly looking for a third way. A way that kind of appeases more people. And yet, we ought not lose confidence even if the whole culture and the great majority says, you're crazy. Rather, we ought to gain confidence because Christ said, the servant is not greater than his master. If he is persecuted, then you also will be persecuted. <clears throat> so in First John, John writes, children, the last hour, or it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John's saying, we know the end is near because antichrists are everywhere. And those who leave us and follow them, we know that they were never of us. Because those who are Christ persevere in the gospel. They don't chase another gospel. Third, have confidence. Actually, I think we're going to cut the sermon in half. We'll, say, we'll have saved this for next time. So the question I have for you and the question I've been asking myself this week is where has my confidence been laying? Is my confidence in how well I can work, how well I can keep myself, how well I can impress other Christians, how well I compare to the ungodly around me? Does my confidence come in polishing up my own righteousness? Let's admit, it's pretty easy to all of a sudden not realize it and start down that road. But if we're thinking clearly and we know the gospel and we understand that God is omniscient and He knows all of our sin, it's right before Him. If you see God clearly, you and I will begin to look for a Savior really quickly. If God knows my thoughts, if He knows my intentions, if He knows my every deed, well then, polishing up my sinful life, making it look a little better, is going to be no avail to the omnipotent God of the universe. And so, I'll say to you the same thing Paul was saying to them and what we're going to look at next week. He says, I have confidence that you're going to trust the gospel, that you're going to take no other view. And he also has confidence that those preaching this false gospel are going to experience judgment. And his warning is this. If you want to go with them and proclaim their gospel, you can only have confidence that there's pending judgment waiting 
for you as you offer up your works, even if it's mixed with some sort of Christ, he says, that's all you got to wait for. So let's never leave this gospel. Let's not take another Christ. Let's have hope in God. Our prayer tomorrow morning should be, Lord, preserve me. For apart from you, apart from your power, I will walk away from you. I will leave my wife. I will go down this road unless you keep me. Unless you keep me, I will chase my flesh. That ought to be our prayer. Our hope is in Christ in his saving power. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that our salvation is not merely you starting it and us having to make sure that somehow by our power and our consistency we make it to the end. Rather, Father, I thank you that we can have confidence that our striving to continue in the faith will not be striving by our own power, but will be striving by faith through the power of the Spirit in your word and your promises. God, let us give full effort to persevere to the end in your strength and your power according to faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.